mistakes are our friends. That's how you learn anything. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Robert Thurman, Wisdom is Tolerance of Cognitive Dissonance. My guests today, Carol Tavris and Elliot Aronson, literally wrote the book on cognitive dissonance. Carol and Elliot are both distinguished social psychologists, best-selling authors, and distinguished lecturers. Together, they offered the amazing book, Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me, which is an influential bestseller and one of my favorite books on one of my favorite subjects. In fact, whenever I'm asked the question about what book I give the most, the answer is Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. So Carol and Elliot, thank you for joining us today on the Elevate Podcast. A pleasure to be with you. Yeah, nice to be here, Bob. Uh, we, I know we had some misses with COVID and me throwing my back out, but we uh, we, we made it happen. So, so I'd love to start by digging into each of your backgrounds a, l- a little bit. Uh, maybe start with you, Elliot. What what drew each of you into the field of psychology? Well, my standard answer to that question is that I think I've been a social psychologist almost all my life, even before I knew there was such a thing as social psychology. And one of my most vivid memories comes from the time when I was about nine years old. And it's a social psychological memory. Um, I'll give you a little background. Um, We were dirt poor. I grew up during the Great Economic Depression of the 1930s. And uh, my father was uneducated, unemployed, and extremely unhappy. And we lived in um, a very uh, low quality uh, blue collar uh, tenement house in a city just uh, northeast of uh, Boston, Massachusetts. And it was a very anti-Semitic neighborhood. And my parents were Orthodox Jews. And uh, they sent me to Hebrew school every evening, four nights a week. And uh, coming home from Hebrew school, carrying my Hebrew books was always a bit of of an adventure for me because there were teenage gangs hanging out on street corners and uh, they uh, often um, harassed me. Uh, Most of the time it was only verbal, like shouting uh, anti-Semitic insults. Occasionally they pushed me around and every once in a while, they roughed me up quite a bit. And it was after one of these drubbings, my memory comes from sitting on a curbstone, nursing a bloody nose and a split lip and feeling really sorry for myself. And I remember vividly beginning to wonder why these kids hated me so much when they didn't even know me. Yeah and wondering why they hated Jews so much. Did somebody teach them to hate Jews or or were they born hating Jews or did their parents teach them or their priests or whatever? And wondering if they got to know me better and discovered what a sweet and charming little boy I was, would they like me more? And if they began to like me more, I wondered, would they hate other Jews less? 
Now, of course, I didn't realize it at the time, but these are profound social psychological questions. 10 years later, I'm a sophomore at Brandeis University, and I wandered quite by accident into a class in, I was majoring in uh, economics, but I went with a girl I was interested in uh, to her class, uh, which was a class in introductory psychology being taught by a guy named Abraham Maslow. Right. I never heard of him. I didn't know who he was. Uh, but I figured if I if we sat in the back of the room, maybe we could hold hands or something. <laughs> Those were really innocent. Fall, in, fall under the radar. Yeah. yeah. And then I was sitting there holding hands with the, the young woman. And suddenly Maslow, I started to pay attention to what Maslow was saying. And he was raising, he was, he was talking about racial and religious prejudice. And he was raising some of the very questions that I had raised when I was nine years old, I immediately dropped the woman's hand and began taking notes. <laughs> I, I lost the girl, <laughs> but I gained a vocation because the very next day I switched my major from economics, which I was not liking very much, to psychology. In those days, I thought psychology was all about psychotherapy. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what most people think. But uh, I didn't know there were other things involved. And I switched my major to psychology. I began working with Abraham Maslow. We became quite fond of each other. And he encouraged me to go to graduate school. And that's how I started in this career. Pretty good mentor. Carol, how about you? My experience was quite different. I was not a psychology major as an undergraduate. In fact, psychology was the worst class I took, also at Brandeis. Um, hated it, thought this is not my field at all. And I ended up going to graduate school in sociology and discovering that it was tedious, boring, and not remotely interesting. But I was at the University of Michigan where they had an interdisciplinary program between psychology and sociology in social psychology. And I immediately felt right at home. It was interdisciplinary. You could study everything from two people in interaction to war and peace and love and fury. I mean, there, there was no subject social psychologists did not study. And I loved that. I loved its interdisciplinary nature. And I loved its applicability to our everyday lives in so many domains. I shared with Elliot something Elliot said in his beautiful autobiography, not by chance alone, is um, clinical psychology is about repair. Social psychology is about change. And I think Elliot and I both felt at home in a field that was teaching us about change at a personal level and at a social level. So how did you you both meet and how did you sort of settle on this subject of, of cognitive dissonance in your work? Ah, well, we met because I was a young editor at Psychology Today magazine in the days when that magazine first was getting underway. And I was dispatched to interview the already world famous Elliot Aronson, who was already doing spectacular uh, research on many areas of human relations, including as I always tease him, interpersonal attraction, love, friendship, and so forth. And they said, all right, Tavris, get out there, get to a conference interview, Elliot, get him to write an article for Psych Today. And that's how we met. I mean, many, many years ago, we ended up doing a film together on prejudice for Psychology Today Films, 
Over the years, we tried various collaborations on little topics. I interviewed him for my world-famous unpublished article on condom <laughs> etiquette. <laughs> Still that might happen, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Well, Elliot had done this fascinating <laughs> research on applying cognitive dissonance theory to getting young men to use condoms, this in the HIV AIDS days. So we we had become friends very early on. We worked together at the magazine and for other articles, but uh, the book was our greatest and most fun collaboration, of course. Yeah, it was. And it was, you know, around that time uh, when we started to write the book is when I began to lose my eyesight. So it was a wonderful collaboration in the sense that uh, only one of us could see. Uh, <laughs> and that was very interesting. And uh, it, we were always good friends from the early 1960s uh, on. And we wrote that book uh, in the 21st century. But I think the book really, really enhanced our friendship enormously. And it was it was truly a collaboration of of content and our life work and life interests. We were sitting on Elliot's porch talking about George Bush and the and Iraq and mm. the claim soon to be shown wrong that the reason for that war was that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, and we knew already that that was not true. And Elliot said to me, "You know," he said, "Many liberals think George Bush was lying." lying to the country about the reason for justifying the war. He said, I think George Bush was lying to himself. He had made the decision for that invasion, and he found a way to justify it. Um, and in that respect, he was doing what all of us do, all of us do in our everyday lives. Once we've decided to do something, we find justification yeah. for it. And this was before social media would would do that for us, right, <laughs> through yeah. algorithms. But I, I'm not prone to hyperbole, but I, I really have come to believe that I think cognitive dissonance is one of the most powerful forces that impacts us each day. But I still, a lot of, a lot of people don't know what it means. So let, let before we dig into it here, how do you define cognitive dissonance and also sort of self-justification uh, function in everyday life? Well, uh how much time do you have? <laughs> um, Cliff no version. First of all, I, I, I just want to say that I've been very lucky in this profession because when I entered graduate school at Stanford, I came the same year that Leon Festinger arrived at Stanford, and he was just developing this brand new theory that I found very, very exciting. And so there's a sense in which Leon and I were fated to work together initially at the very beginning of this theory. And the theory is very simple and very exciting. The simple aspect of the theory is simply this. Whenever a person holds two cognitions, ideas, beliefs, something about his own behavior, uh, that are inconsistent, where the one implies the opposite of the other, that person will experience cognitive dissonance. And cognitive dissonance is a negative drive state, like extreme hunger or extreme thirst. It's really unpleasant, but it takes place in your head. And it's 
it is unpleasant and we're motivated to reduce it the same way we're motivated to reduce hunger and thirst. And we reduce it by changing one or both cognitions to try to bring them closer to In alignment. Yeah. So the best way to describe it, I think, is to talk about the very first experiment I ever did in my life. Um, the, the hypothesis was if you go through an unpleasant experience in order to achieve something, that's something you achieve will become more attractive. So in this case, I had people go through a severe initiation in order to gain admission to a discussion group. Yeah. And uh, in a control condition, people went through a very mild initiation in order to get into the same group. And the group was really boring. We made a tape recording of discussion. It was as boring as it could possibly be. And we played the same tape recording to everybody, regardless of their prior condition. And then when the people rated the discussion afterwards, the people in the severe initiation condition really loved it. And the people in the mild initiation condition saw it for what it was, a really boring tedious group so what you're saying is fraternities and sororities have known what they're doing for a really long time oh yeah and the marines and the marines yeah. <laughs> right and, and the reason for lay people is and and why it ties to this because i you know i've spent more time reading this is that the, the belief that it had to have been worth it right that it couldn't they couldn't have gone through this for no reason so their mind convinced themselves it's better than it can it has to pick one of these two things and remove the evidence from the other one right yeah. and the way the way festinger would have stated it is the cognition i went through hell and high water to get <laughs> into this group is dissonant with a cog with anything negative about the group yeah. if it's boring why did i do that <laughs> so you convince yourself you turn something boring into something better than boring. But boy, they, they really work hard at this thing. And it's not always interesting, but boy, you can see how hard they're working. What a great group of people they are. Now, eventually, I modified the theory a little by realizing that it makes its clearest prediction when one of those cognitions is not about a belief or anything, but is something about the self the self-concept. So if you look at the initiation experiment, Festinger would have said the cognition, I went through hell and high water in order to get into this group is dissonant with the cognition that the group is lousy. So I changed the lousiness of the group and make it more interesting. The way I would state it is the cognition that I went through hell and high water and got into a lousy group in exchange for that is dissonant with my self-concept as a smart, wise, competent right. person. Yeah. And when, when the self is involved, when the self is plugged in, that's when cognitive dissonance theory makes the really clearest, most precise predictions. I would I would add to this that what was most exciting for me in working with Elliot on this book, because Elliot is really the one who moved dissonance theory into a theory of self-justification, why it is so hard for people who think of themselves 
as smarter than average, cuter than average, better drivers than average, everybody, you know, better than average, why it is so hard to accept dissonant information showing that we have just done something foolish, harmful, cruel, you know, a terrible mistake. We have to either say, I was really a dork. I was foolish after all. I made a bad mistake, even though I see myself as a competent, knowledgeable person. Or we have to dismiss the dissonant evidence. Oh, piss off and take your stupid study with you, right? And of course, that's the generally the easier line of attack for people, which is to dismiss dissonant evidence rather than change your view of yourself or your beliefs and practices. Sounds like you've described everything about politics in 2022 globally. Although I will come, we'll come back to that later. Or we'll, get, <laughs> there you go. we'll get very distracted. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I, I want to say that for me, you know, as, as a student, I'd read all about cognitive dissonance and I knew about Elliot's work on cognitive dissonance, but are doing this book together in which we apply the consequences of dissonance to so many domains of life, the criminal justice system, politics, of course, memory, family relationships, family rifts, um, is so many domains where working with Elliot really made me aware, as you were saying, Bob, of the power of understanding how this stuff works. So the metaphor Elliot came up with for thinking about this over the long haul is that reducing dissonance can be a one-time thing. Should I buy this car or that car? I buy this car and now I reduce the dissonance about the car I didn't buy. Fine. You also see that car everywhere you drive once you buy it, right? (laughs) You do. I mean, I call it black Jetta syndrome. There is like a confirmation (laughs) bias of like, now everyone has that car after you buy it. Exactly. And isn't it a fabulous car? (laughs) And the car I didn't buy is a complete lemon and a toad. Right. (laughs) Okay. Now what I, I think the heart and soul of, of the book and a, really accounts for where we are now as a nation in polarizing terms is the metaphor of the pyramid in which if you imagine two people at the top of a pyramid with the same attitudes, vague attitudes about something, uh, are vaccines good or bad? Is cheating a terrible thing or an okay thing? Should I make this decision or that decision? And you, you, you make lists and you think about things. It's not terribly essential, but now as in one study of children whose views about cheating were being studied. Now, now here you are, two, you're two friends. You're side by side at the top with kind of the same attitude about something. And now you're given an opportunity to cheat, let's say, on an exam. One of you cheats in order to get a good grade. This is essential. If I don't get a good grade on this exam, my life is over. But the other does not cheat to maintain his or her belief that they're a person of integrity and ethics. Okay. One cheats, one doesn't cheat. The minute they make that choice, they must now make their behavior consonant with their belief about cheating. So the cheater will now say cheating is not such a bad thing. Everybody cheats. It's not important. It's just once, blah, blah. The one who resisted cheating will, will make say, it sound like the death penalty is the only Exactly. Only you can cry. kill yeah. this <laughs> in the stocks now. Okay. Now, the key thing is over time, over time, those justifications roll along getting harder and harder in determining your views about cheating until over time, you're now, the two of you are at the base of this pyramid, quite far apart from each other, having forgotten what you originally... For, for maybe a split-second, 30-second decision on whether to do it or not, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so very often, the decision 
can be impetuous or impulsive or not very well informed, but over time to preserve your belief that you made the right decision, it's going to feel and, and people are unaware of the fact that they're doing it because it it flies just below the level of consciousness. Right. So that they think, I always had that belief. Yeah. I always believed that Donald Trump was a great man, for example, rather than the fact that I was committed to vote for him, that I was committed to work for him. Then I began to justify all of the things that he was doing that I otherwise would not have been able to appreciate. And I always felt that way. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Right, and, and and it's interesting how that removes nuance where some people might say, I and again, not to get into too much, but Trump's a good example where, because where, I've heard this, where I, I like his policy, but I don't think he tells the truth, right? It, it removes nuance where you could make objective things where it, it feels like you have to be all in or all out, right? You take Rusty Bowers, for example, <laughs> yeah. who testified in front of the uh, the January 6th committee. He refused to break the law, to break his oath by cheating on the election in Arizona. And yet, and, and Trump supporters harassed him. Uh, his daughter was dying of a terminal illness in his home, and they were shouting through megaphones aimed at his house, mm. that he was a pedophile and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And afterwards he said, oh, if Trump runs again, I'll vote for him. 
Mm-hmm. An amazing thing. If you don't understand how cognitive dissonance works, it sounds ludicrous. And you need, and it shows why the vehemence, the vehemence and rage that Trump supporters feel toward anybody who simply tells the truth about any of Trump's machinations and lies and so forth, they stand as as almost a silent accusation of the wrongness of their own belief. I have to obliterate that person. I have to obliterate their the dissonance that they create in me. I, I well, it's funny. I, I was. So I was reading the book. Uh, when I first read the book, uh, my daughter was eight, and we were looking as, you know, New England tradition at overnight camps. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I went to one in Maine, my, you know, and, and so there are a couple of different decisions, and, and people are very adamant about it. And in our community and friends, family, everyone, summer camp is a cultural thing. So there's there's single sex or co-ed camps. There's kind of denominational camps there's people like me they're all in on sort of the main camp experience the other people who like the Pocono or whatever it may be and so as my wife is talking to all of her friends on this and I'm reading this book and saying well what we're trying what's right for Chloe each one of them is advocating for where they went to camp or where their kids went to camp right has has nothing to do with my daughter or what her you know it was they were adamant about single sex camps. They were adamant about this geography. They were adamant about co-ed camps. Mm-hmm. And and so I was just like watching this movie in real time being like, this is interesting. <laughs> like they're not listening to the information about Chloe. <laughs> this has nothing to do with, you know, that they are, they are all justifying the decision they made. It's so hard for people to say, you know, I made you know, you'll see parents with kids. They all go to the same school. I mean, I, I, my brother and sister and I did. Like, you know, versus I always appreciate when a parent says, you know what, this one went to private. This one was much better served in public. You know, it's just, it was just so interesting to watch. And I was able to see firsthand that, you know, it's so hard for people to give advice or stuff that isn't validating their own decisions in some way to say, hey, you know what? I actually sent my kids to co-ed camp, but knowing your daughter and that she likes these activities and not, I, I think this would be a better fit for her. It was everyone selling what they had done or what, what had been done for them. Even more important than that is we distort our memories of our own experience. Right. In that situation. I, right. I loved it. I didn't love it that much, and, but now yeah. I really loved it in history. <laughs> I really, it, turns, it turns out it was good for me. I'm going to send my son to military school, you know? I, yeah. Unless you pulled out the letters that said, take me home. I hate this. You know, it's awful. It's horrible. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The general rule is the more time, money, effort, investment, commitment we put into anything, that's the initiation experiment. The more we are going to value it, whether so the- you, you have some great examples in the book. I want I want to dive into them a little bit. So one of my favorite, oh, there's two of my favorites. I'll start with the first favorite was you wrote about the followers of cult leaders, and especially cult leaders who predicted that the world was going to end on a specific date and told everyone to prepare. And they had these huge followings. So, so the predicted date comes, there's no rapture. The world doesn't, you know, blown up. And you know, you'd think that all these people would just abandon this person and be like, I've been duped. But typically what happens is that cult leader then says, oh, they made some miscalculation and there's a new date for the apocalypse and <laughs> everyone doubles down and, and follows them. Like what, 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 when you talk to people, what were the reasons that, what were the pragmatic reasons that they gave? Could they just not admit that they were duped by a charlatan? So they were willing to be double duped by a charlatan? 
Exactly right. <laughs> and they go out and they proselytize others to join the cult afterwards. That's amazing. So after they were duped by the charlatan who misses the end of the world date, they become more likely to be recruiters for the next date? Yeah. But now keep in mind, this is especially if they have made some public commitment to being right. duped to the guy. They've been out on the street saying, the world is ending, sell your house now, as opposed to sitting by themselves in the living room saying, gee, I guess the world is going to end. You know, Maybe I'll have a hot fudge Sunday tonight. If there's no public display or commitment, they can just say, oh, well, that guy was an idiot. It's no big deal. But the more you've made a public commitment, the more you otherwise have embarrassed yourself. Well, it can be public or it can be private because uh, like Festinger did that original experiment on a cult like that. And they were not terribly public, but they made other kinds of commitments. Like they gave away all their possessions because they were going to be flown to some <laughs> other planet. And who needs possessions and who needs money? Uh, they really made a, a different kind of commitment. They divested themselves of all their possessions and they had to justify that. And, and the way they reduce the dissonance of being wrong. So colossally wrong. The world did not end on December 21st. Correct. So colossally wrong. How do you live with yourself? You've got these people that have gotten rid of all their possession. And in in the, the famous book, When Prophecy Fails, that Festinger and others wrote, <laughs> what the leader did was she's getting worried, worried, worried. She's really worried. And by the way, her husband slept soundly all night long while she's waiting in the living room for the end of the world. But what happened was she, after really great anxiety, the world hasn't ended, she comes in and says, thanks to the faith of our little band, they have decided to spare the world. Yeah, that's a brilliant little switch. Yeah, that's brilliant. See, I have saved the planet. Not I was a complete idiot to believe this. Which which solution would you choose? So what what could be done to break someone out of that cult? leader spell like in that case like what 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 would a psychologist do to help that person <laughs> reevaluate the situation it's not easy <laughs> it's not easy be, partly because cognitive dissonance reduction is an unconscious process right so what i would try to get the person to do gently and it has to be gentle <laughs> the first thing i wouldn't do is to say what in the world yeah. were you thinking? <laughs> you like, idiot. If, yeah. if your aged father or me, an aged 90-year-old, gets duped by um, some uh, scammer on the internet or on the telephone, the last thing in the world you want to say to that person was, how could you have been so stupid? Because that is going to get them back them into a corner and get them to try to reduce dissonance even more and to find some other reasons. You have to be gentle with it. And you have to say, boy, these scammers are really clever. They're very successful. They get all kinds of people hooked. What did you find so attractive about that? Right. You have to remove the, the shame piece of, yeah, the interesting. Piece. They want to maintain the belief that they're not stupid, that they're not idiotic. Yeah. So you have to say anyone could have been fooled by them. There's nothing really wrong with you. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's that's the first step. 
Uh, but it's, it's not easy. And one of the strategies that I use on myself and on others is to ask the question, to try to bring it into consciousness. So the question is, what do you know that you really would rather not know about this issue? Because it's, it's just barely below the level of consciousness. And if you can bring that information into consciousness, then the person himself or herself feels not quite as dumb as they would have felt if they hadn't done it on their own. This is really good. Elliot and I did a workshop one year that, in which Elliot asked the question, these were people thinking about their regrets and, in a way, the kind of dissonance they couldn't let go of. And um, he said to them, so what did you know about that decision that you now regret, that you didn't want to know at the time? Yeah, this is a good tactic. We do this in interviews. When you ask people in past tense, it gives them an excuse yeah. to be a different person, right? Exactly right. And then they would say things like, well, you know, my, my sister warned me that he was an alcoholic and I didn't want to listen to her. Yeah. I didn't want to hear it. I didn't want to hear it. And what that does is it makes you aware of the way in which then you were rejecting information that you didn't want because it was dissonant and not the not the information that you wanted to have. Yeah, Jeff Smart, who's one of the top... Uh, interview people in the world gurus you know says this a lot that if you ask people what what, what would a boss say about you back then you actually mm -hmm. remove the dissonance i'm guessing and and you get oh well back then i was a real rude pompous <laughs> you know jerk but today i'm refined and it, you know it's a very interesting it really works uh mm -hmm. i guess and i'm guessing it works because it's removing the dissonance a little bit well and you know there there are ways to bring dissonance into awareness um we often recommend that people have a look at Sarah Silverman's YouTube when Louis C.K. was accused of all that, you know, the inappropriate yeah. sexual behavior. And she had it's watching cognitive dissonance in action. She says, look, here's the thing. I love Louis C.K. I think he's wonderful. He's a great father. He's been the best friend to me for 25 years. I completely adore him. And what he did was completely wrong. And we have to listen to women who are, you know, right. blowing the whistle on. Okay. Now, th that's what most people don't do. They either end the friendship or minimize the inappropriate or illegal or immoral behavior. See, we, we have to bring this in balance. And yeah. what she is was willing to say is, you know what? It, <laughs> this is really uncomfortable feeling. I'll let you know how I resolve it if I ever do. But that ability is what we can all strive to learn. There's a name for that. It's creative compartmentalization. Um, you take the behavior and you say, that was wrong behavior. And this is a good person who has done some wonderful things. So you compartmentalize right. rather than going all in or all out. Especially for ourselves. When I do something stupid, foolish, incompetent, or wrong, it doesn't mean I am a stupid, foolish, incompetent person forever and always. It means on that occasion for that decision, that was turned out to be wrong, a wrong belief. Time to get rid of that belief. It's just. But this notion of, again, uh, there was a psychologist or, or a family specialist who said years ago, it's something I was at. She was talking about praising or, uh, kids or, or yelling at kids. She said, never talk about characteristic, talk about behavior. She said, don't even tell your kid they're smart. Right. Because then that's a free pass. Tell them something they did is smart, something they did is not smart. 
and I just find this, particularly with celebrity figures these days, it get, people's need to be all in rather than compartmentalized. As you say, like, yes, I I just got tickets for this Bono event that's coming around. Like, you know, YouTube, huge influence on my life. Bono's been, you know, but but if I found out he did something terrible, like, I, again, those things to me would be separate. Like, huge influence, impact on my life, whatever. Don't condone doing x with blackmailing that's a terrible abhorrent behavior i don't has it gotten worse that that, that, and maybe it's social media and the public nature that people cannot compartment they have to be all in or all out on someone they can't look at the pieces is that just because we've become so left and right (laughs) like as a as a society we're right and wrong. We become right and wrong. <laughs> yeah. But we become right and wrong. The, you're the right- all wrong or you're all right. You're all right. The righteousness police um, and the, you know, the virtue signalers, if anybody ever made a remark that was sexist or racist or homophobic or bad or wrong or immoral or anything we don't like, then we must eradicate them from the pantheon of writers and artists and, you know, performers. Or the opposite. We love them. And therefore everything they do that's negative can be explained away because they did some past positive thing. And we can always get support for that from the media, from the social network. My slogan right now is where have you gone? Walter Cronkite mm-hmm. We really need you now right. when everybody used to watch the news from somebody like Walter Cronkite, who was fair minded, who was even handed, who would give you both sides of an issue uh, and who would give you the end, right. give you the end. Yeah. 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 Rather than always getting support for your own narrow belief, which you can get from MSNBC. Well, that also, we said before, that happens That happens algorithmically these days, right? You have yeah. a belief, you liked a few articles, you are just fed all of the stuff that matches your existing beliefs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So, so one takeaway that, I don't know if it was explicit in the book, but it was one of my biggest takeaways, and it ties to a major world event right now, which was, if you actually think about this and you understand this in leadership and and particularly if you think about like military theory like people are going to need a way out right if you want to solve something they are going to need a way out and a way to save face you know people in your company people that you lead and this is what scares the crap out of me with Russia and the Putin situation right now in that like you know you're talking about someone who's kind of a, a megalomaniac like there's no uh, giving up or walking away. Like uh, he, in order for this thing to end, he is going to need a way out. Like ha- how does that apply to how people need to think more about cognitive dissonance? Cause you were kind of explaining that in the context of the cult, like ha- trying to talk them through a way mentally out of it. But, but I think people just perceive that someone who's cornered is going to say, you know what? I was totally wrong. Change my mind. And if you haven't learned anything on this podcast already, that's never going to happen. So not by itself. And you get a guy like Putin, and he's already rattling nuclear weapons, yeah. right? He's already saying we may have to use nuclear weapons here. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you ease a person out of that in a Putin-like situation. But let's take it down to a leader of someone who's made a mistake on their team, done something wrong, really in a bad corner. Like, how, how do you, because, Carol, I think you knew this before, it's just, we so want to say, I told you so, or whatever, like, but it just seems like it's a weird backward. But if you actually want to move forward, you're going to need to let them out with some saving face, right? Gently, 
yeah. by helping them, by really supporting their initial justifications of the action, by saying, yeah, any smart person might have wanted to do that. But there comes a time when you have to pull back uh, because it's not working. That's yeah. a very glib statement, but you have to find a way to do that. Well, it's why, as we saw over and over in our book, you know, we end each chapter with the story of someone who was able to break out of their own cocoon of dissonance yeah. and yeah. see the consequences of the severity of the mistake they made. A therapist contributing to the recovered memory hysteria, a prosecutor who had put an innocent man in prison for 30 years. Um, so that was my second favorite story. Can you can you talk about the the research on the the prosecutors and the DNA? As I, I just thought. That was a fascinating example of, again, this is under like an integrity situation too and what people actually do. Well, exactly. It's And it's related to this larger question of, yeah. about leaders and what do you have to do with them? Because basically, as we said before, the greater the mistake you've made, the harder it is for you to correct it. And this is particularly the case in the criminal justice system where uh, the prosecutors, the police, um, all see themselves as the good guys. You know, we're the ones fighting for honesty and justice and truth. And the, and now I give you information that this person that's been who's been in prison now for twenty or thirty or forty years is actually innocent. Right. So in this case, DNA evidence comes out inconclusive that it wasn't them. They weren't there. And, and you'd think the former prosecutor would go to jail, say, I'm sorry, and, and let them out. But that's never what happens. So what what, what happened? It almost ne- <laughs> It is almost never what happens. The prosecutor says, OK, this rapist, uh, before we thought it was just one rapist, you know, who attacked this woman. Uh, but now we realize, no, probably he was he was there, but he didn't actually rape her. He just held her down while his friend Fred raped her. Um, you know, The Innocence Project guys call this the unindicted co-ejaculator theory. There is only one rapist before the conviction, but afterwards, in order to justify having put this innocent guy in prison, um, we will we will come up with another explanation of what actually happened. What they're saying is, you know, or, okay, he didn't do this crime, but he did something else equally horrible. You, I mean, you talked about in the book, these prosecutors would come out of retirement and work these cases trying to prove that this person... Really we're still guilty. guilty. Really yeah. guilty. <laughs> to me, the most interesting part of this is that the reason the person does that, the reason the prosecutor comes out of retirement, is not because he's a bad guy. It's because he thinks he's a good guy. And he would never put a guilty person in jail. Exactly. How could I have sent this guy to prison for 30 years? So I'll send, I'll keep him in prison for another 20 years. Exactly. That's the irony of the situation. That is very powerful. In Massachusetts, a judge gave the prosecutors in a case where during the uh, hysteria many years ago that was sending innocent daycare workers to prison for allegedly having molested the dozens of children in their care. These, this was a, a sad tale of national hysteria. And one of the, a judge, an appellate judge, said to the prosecutors, who had put this innocent woman in prison. Look, at the time, you were doing what you thought was the right thing. You thought you had the right evidence. You believed the testimony of the children. You were doing the right moral good thing as prosecutors. Now, 
15, 20 years later, we understand about coercive testimony of children. Now we understand what was really happening. You did the right thing then. Let's do the right thing now. And the prosecutor said, no, we're not letting them out. Sounds like the judge read your book, but not yeah. the prosecutor. The judge read the yeah. book. Now, so this is why, though, this goes back to the original point about leaders and so forth. It's why, tragically, to correct these massive miscarriages of justice it can't be the original prosecutors. It can't be the original leaders. It can't be the original CEOs if they won't step up and say, we did this wrong. It's the next generation that does the corrections. It's the next generation of prosecutors that that got the Central Park Five released from prison in New York. It's the next generation in Dallas who reopened the cases where there were murky convictions and got many of those innocent guys out. And the initial people like in the uh, Central Park Jogger case, the initial prosecutor still believes that those kids were guilty of that crime uh, and that they were released from prison wrongfully in spite of all the evidence. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info the ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash elevate probably despite of any evidence <laughs> possibly presented right if someone else came forward admitted to it they would say they're lying. like it's well, just dna was a perfect match by the way and it was, i've never met those kids yeah very interesting it is it is and the interesting thing i would say this at a professional level as well as a personal level the great irony is you know, people say, well, maybe the prosecutors don't want to admit they made a mistake because their jobs would be on the line. But in fact, if they were to say, you know what, we made a terrible miscarriage of justice, and now we're going to get go and get the real perpetrator. We're going to get the real guilty party here. Um, I think they would, they would be honored for such honesty. And um, as those who have managed to do it have indeed been. There was one prosecutor who wrote an op-ed piece saying, I'm going to have to atone for the entire rest of my life for this terrible thing I did to this innocent man. Okay. And we're, what an admirable thing. It's, it's the same in families and in relationships where when you say, you know what, uh, Harry, you and I have been fighting for years and I've thought about this carefully and you're right and I'm wrong. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> is anybody, is, is Harry going to mind that you said that? Of course not. Yeah. And so the burden of, of fessing up is, is not such an onerous thing. And one of the things we've written about is that in medical malpractice, when a physician owns up to having made that kind of mistake, 
He's less likely to be sued for malpractice because people who are convinced that the physician made a mistake, they simply want to, to be, be verified. And doctors initially in the olden days <laughs> were pretty arrogant about it, but now they're beginning to learn that being honest about it and owning up to mistakes is not only the best thing to do for your own conscience, but is more effective. There have been multiple studies that show that it's not the doctors. The doctors who get sued for malpractice, it's the ones who are more, most arrogant and dismissive of their patients, not the ones who make the most mistakes, right? So it it mm-hmm. it, it totally correlates with that. Well, I, as I listen to this, <laughs> it paints a very somber picture of, of being able to get someone out of deep dissonance. So in lieu of that, how do parents, leaders, other people coach their employees kids what how do you teach people to be more multi-sided and not fall into this trap like what what if there's a parenting philosophy or something you would espouse to try to do this what what would it be is it is it around the and is it around taking different opinions like how it seems so hard to get out of the spiral when you're in it so avoiding it <laughs> seems to be the best option or modeling it for your kids. <laughs> right. If, if you want to be a good parent, own up to your own mistakes and find a way of doing it where your kid could really appreciate what you're doing just as a patient appreciates it when his physician owns up to a mistake. That's great modeling in parenting. Mm-hmm. And as you were saying before, of course, Making a mistake doesn't mean that it's something in you forever and permanent. Yeah. It's uh, as one of the children in Carol Dweck's study said, mistakes are our friends. That's how you learn anything. You can't advance if you don't. Uh, yeah. So so then we may be in trouble, right? Because we we haven't we had sort of this two decades of parenting of and school systems. And I, I mean, everyone has a 4.0, like in high school now. Like, I mean, it, it, it's like I it, it, we've made getting something wrong or making mistake a really bad thing. So, so this culture of excellence would seem to manifest this not comfortable with making a mistake and talking about it, uh, which is needed here, right? It absolutely is. Um, that's a s- system-wide issue. Um, right. Trying to swim in that system is is difficult. Of course, it is. So. I, again, I, I'll be careful getting into politics. So let, let's talk about this generically. But you know, we are we are super polarized today, and everyone seems to double and triple down on their beliefs. But as you said before, approaching someone and saying, "Hey, you're a total idiot for following this candidate or doing whatever," it, it is not going to get them to <laughs> change their mind. It is going to push them more into their side. And I always think people just think again, someone's going to admit that they were wrong or defeated or off track. What, how can people try to invoke a little more empathy or, or understand where that person started from or the perspective that they have or try to talk them through something if they really actually want to get them closer to the middle rather than, you know, trying to get them to wave the, the mercy flag? Well, uh, I think, first of all, there's two issues in this. If you're arguing with some family member who's uh, who's not going to change their mind, you know, they're they're not only at the bottom of the pyramid, they're under the pyramid. <laughs> yeah. you know, okay. 
Um, and you're not going to change their mind. And, but you would like to have a continuing relationship with them. And you're related or there's going to be family gatherings or whatever it might be. Or maybe it's a coworker, whoever, who, whoever. You don't set about a conversation with the goal of changing their mind. All you can do is state what you think and what your concerns are and what your worries are and how you see things and invite them to participate in a discussion towards solutions without attacking what it is that they believe. For example, I have a friend who, uh, she is a liberal Democrat. She has many conservative Republican friends. She lives in Northern California where there are a number of conservative Republicans. Um, and she got into a discussion with her neighbor about insurance. And the neighbor was furious about Obamacare and the idea that healthy people, healthy people have to pay into an, a health insurance program. Okay. Well, of course, if healthy people don't pay into an insurance program, there's yeah. not enough money to pay for the sick people. So she said, you know what she said? I have not had a car accident in 18 years, but my car insurance is paying for your teenage son who has four accidents in the last year. Okay. I mean, she she made a point about how insurance works that started them having a conversation about Obamacare. See, I mean, it is. You can have conversations about problem solving or topics or what do we what should we be doing about um, the fact that you know factories are closing and uh, you can talk about the, the content of these issues without uh, that that invites the other person to say why it is they think what they think it also seems like it would help to start by saying like Carol like Carol I understand why you have this perspective or might think this way or I understand like just seems like that would be a good door opener other than you are an idiot right which is yeah, where you never a lot start of these with you are, are an idiot yeah. you never start <laughs> but that's what people are doing in 90 percent of the cases of course thinking mm -hmm. that person's gonna be like you know what total idiot totally fooled you know changing my mind it's never, it's never happened no it's not gonna happen and <laughs> and and no matter how you do it in politics nowadays it's not going to be easy the polarization is very powerful and people can get support from the media or from their own support group whenever they need it. Mm -hmm. So that the po that's what preserves the polarization. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we'd be misleading your viewers if we indicated that this was at all easy. It's not easy. <laughs> all we can say is the worst thing you can do is to make the person feel idiotic or stupid for holding the beliefs that they do because that's what they're already doing right that's why they're holding drive on. them further and further yeah. into their corner and i think um, what carol suggested and what you're suggesting is a reasonable first step but it's only a first step and the discussion has to be one of issues and not about stupidity or foolishness or underlying excuses or anything like that very hard i have close friends where it's almost a deal breaker on friendship some of their beliefs but i want to maintain the friendship so it's very we we do a lot of tiptoeing and a lot of very very gentle prodding keep in mind too that many people many of our friends have beliefs we don't even know about and that if we did know about them might be really upsetting to us. You know, I might have a friend who thinks, you know, little green men are coming on a rocket next week. And so, you know, I, I don't know, 
But again, this is a matter of um, compartmentalizing. I like these qualities about this person. I love this person for these qualities about them. This person is generous and loving and a good parent and a good... And they hold these political beliefs that I find abhorrent. So how do I, I as their friend or relative, want to resolve that? For some people, it will be, I can't accept them at all ever in my life. And for others, it will be, no, I'm going to live with the good that they do and the good that they are, aspects of them that I admire and respect. And I just have to accept not that. Elliot and I are fond of telling the story of Shimon Peres, the former uh, prime minister of Israel, who was very angry when Ronald Reagan went to Bitburg, Germany to lay a wreath at the cemetery, which turned out to have 47 Nazi officers buried there. And the world was furious at Reagan for doing that, for going to that cemetery. And a reporter asked Paris what he thought about his friend, Ronald Reagan, going to Bitburg. And Paris said, when a friend makes a mistake, the friend remains a friend, and the mistake remains a mistake. Yeah, that is a great quote. This is absolutely the model of how we might try to live in the world. When my relative, my friend, makes a mistake, holds a belief I find abhorrent, does something I find abhorrent, the friend is still my friend, but what they did is still something I find wrong or abhorrent. That's not easy for us to maintain. Right. Well, it's funny because the reverse, the reverse is also true now that I hear you say that, which is... I mean, we give up on people too soon because, but, but the the non willingness to give up on someone, where you say, "Look, like a value of mine is integrity," and this person made one integrity slip, and then they made another one, and and I now I I've forgiven the first two, and now I found myself defending their actions rather than actually realizing that this is someone who doesn't share a value that I am openly espousing, right? And this this we see a lot with candidate stuff, right? As because it's new information comes out but but it seems like it goes both ways right being deciding rather you know to get rid of someone too quickly or hold on to them too long that's why this is not a psychological issue it's a moral one elliot would you say it is and and that's what i was thinking that what perez said was really understandable and really not difficult Mm -hmm. but what if he's dealing with Putin. <laughs> Someone who became a follower of Hitler. Mm-hmm. I mean, what do you do with that one? Yeah. Um, you know, I just, with this uh, Ken Burns thing on the Holocaust, very powerful. And people in Nazi Germany were supporting Hitler, were engaging in Kristallnacht. How do you justify that? How do you hang on to a friendship? when that is going on. And I think, Bob, that's where I agree with you completely. Sometimes you just have to cut loose because it's more than you can bear mm-hmm. on a moral issue. Yeah, exactly right. That that really summarizes it. It means that we make a moral choice. This is somebody I can stand having a continuing relationship with or not. When are, when are their beliefs too reprehensible to sustain a friendship? Or when did the sustained actions violate my, my yeah. beliefs, right? Yeah. In the example above, there is a mistake and then there is a series of behavior that equals a pattern, right? And and I think those are those are different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now sometimes and one of the things that I really love about cognitive dissonance theory 
is we can raise the question, how do you corrupt an honest person? <laughs> and my favorite example of that is Jeb Stuart Magruder, who was a lawyer in the White House working with Richard Nixon. He was a very honorable man. How do you corrupt an honorable man? One step at a time. You get him to do something a little bit negative, a little bit dishonorable, and he may do it, and then he will justify it. And then you move him a little further along the way, get him to do something a little more dishonorable, and he might do that and justify that. And the next thing you know, and he said that himself in his uh, memoir, after he was convicted and sentenced and served time for what he did, he said, it was like waking up from a bad dream. I don't know how I got there. Well, we know how you got there. One step at a time. You sell your soul to the devil on the installment plan. You don't do it all at once. <laughs> With interest. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. So, so have you ever thought about a sequel to the book? <laughs> we keep writing sequels. Can't come up with a the, title the, as good the, as that. The, you know, the, the Trump edition is our third edition already. <laughs> <laughs> Have you collaborated on any larger projects since then? Well, I keep trying to nudge Elliot into into another one, but I don't know. I'm lazy. I've you could just do the themes, lazy. the theme based ones, like chicken soup for the soul for something, right? You can <laughs> roll. There's there's so many ways it can be applied. So. To, to wrap it up, it's interesting. I, I This is actually the question I ask every guest at the end, but it's very funny in this in this context. Um, I'll let you each answer it separately. But what's a what's a personal or professional mistake that that you've learned the most from <laughs> in your career? Elliot, you want to you want to kick us off? Yeah, I mean, a personal mistake is, you know, if I have any regrets uh, early on, I told the story of being uh beaten up by anti-Semitic bullies. I wish when I was nine years old, I had taken a course in karate <laughs> and, uh, and judo and then um, confronted my bullies like um, like Bruce Lee would have done. Uh, but that's every child's fantasy, right? To have taken that course that would have uh, resulted in um, redemption. Mm. You know, I thought about that a lot. And again, I consider myself extremely lucky because uh, on the really important decisions, the two most important decisions almost everybody has to make, and they usually have to make it between the ages of 20 and 30 is, where do I wanna go and who do I want mm -hmm. to take with me? That is, what kind of work do I want to do for my entire life? And who do I want to live with for my entire life? And on those two decisions, I have been extraordinarily lucky because when I was 22 years old, I wasn't that smart. I wasn't smart enough to have made really good decisions. But those turn out to be the most wonderful decisions of my life. Um, I love the profession I'm in. I'm, I love looking at the world through the lens of social psychology. It's a wonderful way to gain understanding of complex issues. 
And I've now been married to the same woman for 68 years and counting. Those were magnificent decisions. I've made some mistakes. I wish I had been, I don't know, I wish I had spent more time with my kids when they were young. Yeah, that, that could have used some fine tuning. I wish I had been gentler with my graduate students and less demanding. A little bit of fine tuning there would have helped. I consider myself really fortunate that I, there are no huge regrets that I have. Karen? I can't follow that. How can I follow what? How can I follow that? Um, mistakes, yes. I've made some personal mistakes that make me um, regretful. But uh, one of the things I've actually have learned from Elliot is that I see them not as things to beat myself up about now, as I know many people do. You know, if only I hadn't, if only I hadn't. Um, but I see them now as experiences that I learned from that were invaluable, even when they were unpleasant or negative or painful to me or another person. Um, they made me who I am. They made me understand the pains of life as well as the extraordinary joys and ecstasies. Um, so I can come to terms with them. On a professional level, uh, one of the things Elliot and I realized as we were writing the book and talking about the McMartin Day School uh, preschool case in Los Angeles, where yeah. these nice people were accused of molesting the kids, and Elliot, <laughs> Elliot said this beautiful sentence, we sacrificed our skepticism on the altar of outrage. I said, we're writing that down. That's going in the book right here, right now. This is and because that's indeed what we did he less than I because I was living here in Los Angeles at the time and sacrificed my skepticism on the altar of outrage in the same way that since that's a part of my self-concept that I value being a skeptic and a scientist realizing I had sacrificed both of those qualities because you know in the name of righteousness uh, was a humbling lesson for me but I'm pleased to say that thanks to understanding cognitive dissonance <laughs> and uh, overcoming my embarrassment I pulled myself up uh, and um, made amends for that particular intellectual and social mistake in my further writing. So, yeah, uh, you know, it's a constant self-awareness and self-correction. And that's why my collaboration and friendship with Elliot has been such a joy for me. He's been my, my teacher right from the get-go. Well, where can people find more? They can find the book on Amazon or bookstores. Where can they find more about you both and your and your work? Well, the Social Psychology Network, SPN, uh, has ways to reach both of us and has our profiles and other writings and so forth. I have a Wikipedia page that tells more about me than I think anybody needs to know, but <laughs> there's that. Even I have a Wikipedia page. <laughs> ah, you do, Elliot. Much to my astonishment. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and... You know, there are, and there are a lot of podcasts that we've been on, including this one. All right. Well, Carol and Elliot, thank you for joining us uh, today. Your work has, has definitely shaped the way that, that I think, and it was a pleasure to have the chance to discuss it with you both finally uh, live and in person. Thank you, Bob. I've enjoyed it, Bob. All right. You can learn more about Carol and Elliot and their book and the work that they do on the episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode of the Elevate podcast 
or the podcast in general, I really appreciate it if you could leave us a review as it's the best way to help new users discover the show and the great guests like Elliot and Carol. Thank you again for your ongoing support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.